Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Perpetual Balfour, the research director at the Learning Agency Lab, joins us to discuss her creation of an AI chatbot designed to give teachers and other school leaders research-based advice. Then, on the Research Minute, Amber discusses a study covering the negative impacts of new teacher pay of a Texas policy to expand alternative teacher certification. All this on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. I mean, I think this sounds super promising, other than the fact that, of course, it's going to put a bunch of us as our think tankers out of work. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome our special guest for this week, Perpetual Bafour. Perpetual is the research director at the Learning Agency Lab. Perpetual, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Very excited and grateful to be here. Yeah. Also joining us, as always, well, most of the time at least, David Griffith. <laughs> hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. Well, most of the time it's a pleasure. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's always a pleasure when you're here. Come on. Just teasing you. You know, David is is our regular host and he's been very regular, but sometimes, you know, he's got small children and they get sick like all the time because that's what small children do. Duty calls, Mike. Well, Perpetual, super excited to have you on the show. As I said, Perpetual is the research director at the Learning Agency Lab. Uh, for folks that, that aren't familiar with that, tell us a little bit first about the Learning Agency. Absolutely. So the Learning Agency Lab, or what we call the lab for short, is a nonprofit. We definitely believe in the future of AI for education. Our core body of work is around supporting innovation around AI algorithms and how they can be used in educational contexts. The main path through which we kind of achieve that mission is through data science competitions. So we often host these online competitions where we'll release educational data sets and we'll have participating teams build different algorithms that are trained on this data. So for an, an example, we had a huge competition series called the Feedback Prize, where the goal was to build algorithms that could evaluate student writing. So these are the kinds of issues we're hoping to tackle to see more innovation and improvements in education and AI. Uh, super cool stuff. Well, we are here to talk about a new project that you guys have, which is a customized chatbot that is designed to provide teachers and other educators evidence-based advice. Let's talk about that on Ed Reform Update. Okay, so as I understand it, Perpetual, what you all did is you took a version of ChatGPT and you trained it on a part of the What Works Clearinghouse website, the Doing What Works library, uh, and then you tested to see if once trained at, like that, if it gave better answers to, you know, kind of really important wonky questions about educational practice. Did I get that right? Yes, that is correct. And I think the huge inspiration and motivation behind this project, as you know, ChatGPT is a huge groundbreaking advancement in technology. But as a tool, it's been trained on this general knowledge base of information across the web, Wikipedia articles and things of the like. So as you can imagine, there's probably a lot of great, accurate information about educational practice online, but there also is to, you know, a certain extent, a lot of misinformation or outdated information online. And ChatGPT 
GPT can't tell the difference, right? And so the inspiration behind this project was, can we build a similarly intelligent chatbot that has been exposed to high quality data, high quality educational research so that it can answer questions about educational programs, educational practices, and educational policies with a higher level of accuracy. And so our data source was the Doing What Works Library. It's based on the federal initiative, the Doing What Works Clearinghouse, which pretty much just publishes different research studies on what actually works in education. And then with that research evidence as our data source, we use this other framework called LangChain. LangChain is a really hot framework right now because it's used to help build applications around large language models. And so LangChain as a framework allows us to connect ChatGPT to other sources of data like the Doing What Works library. And that's a essentially how this chatbot that we developed was born. Well, it's it's super cool. So let's talk about how well it works, right? Uh, you tested it by asking some questions and, and what? Basically seeing if it answers better than the chatbot, the regular version of the chatbot did. And it sounded like the results were pretty promising. The results were definitely promising. I think at a high level, what we found is that these sorts of customized chatbots are really great when you're asking it inquiries and prompts that are very specific to the custom knowledge base and data that it's been trained on. So the Doing What Works library covers a wide range of topics from school turnaround interventions to early literacy. And so when you ask it very specific questions, related to these topics, the customized Doing What Works chatbot outperforms ChatGPT. And so that was really promising. If you ask it questions that are more general knowledge, so for instance, let's say you ask as a prompt, you know, what is a stereotype threat? There's information about stereotype threats across the web. And so here you might see similarities between what the regular chat GPT might output compared to the customized DWW chatbot, which we developed. But if you ask it more specific questions like, can you talk to me about Chicago Public Schools dropout pro program? Can you talk to me about what the research evidence says about RTI, response to intervention? That's when we see the, D the Doing What Works chatbot truly shine because now it has to rely on the custom knowledge base. Yeah. And, and this base that, again, has been vetted by these experts of the What Works Clearinghouse. So, I mean, I think this sounds super promising, other than the fact that, of course, it's going to put a bunch of us as think tankers out of work perpetual. I mean, my goodness, what, what are we going to do? We, people aren't going to ask us these questions anymore. They're going to ask the chat GPT, uh, you know, this special specialized bot. But that's OK. I, I do wonder, you know, I, I've always been curious about how practitioners look for information when they have a problem, you know, where are they looking for evidence? And there's been some studies where we go out and people go out and ask them and they'll say they hear about things at conferences. They read about ideas in books. Uh, they, you know, they do get, uh, they look at articles online. They do Google searches. And so part of this is to say, well, eventually they're going to need to get to this bot, right? Although there's there's talk about how search engines someday are going to be much more uh, like a search bot. I guess the Bing is already like this. Google is probably going to head in this direction. So do you have a sense? I mean, is is this mean that if now a teacher goes into a search engine and it is powered by a bot instead of the, the Google search kind of thing we're used to, that they are going to end up getting better information going forward? That's a really great question. I think that so long as the bot is powered um, and heavily dominated or has been heavily trained on quality data, I do think we'll see improved access 
to research evidence and quality information that teachers can access. And I think that's one of the advantages of creating these bot technologies. I think that was the inspiration behind the Doing What Works library as well, is because we have a lot of research studies, dozens, if not hundreds, published each year on what works in education, right? But a lot of them are kind of centralized in academic journals. They might have a lot of technical jargon and the information isn't easily accessible or digestible to a teacher. So the Doing What Works library was one step in this direction to translate a lot of those research findings into more accessible materials like videos, audio clips, different articles and resources. I think the chatbot makes that information even more accessible because now a teacher can have a conversation with the bot, with an agent, and ask it very specific questions and get that information back as well. And if you have these bots that can be plugged into different websites, into search engines, I think that will allow for greater accessibility of high quality educational research. I mean, what what do you think about this, David? Sounds like all upside, right? It's definitely, there's definitely no downside, right? I think, I mean, and I'm sure Perpetual feels the same way. I mean, it's all about uptake, right? And when whether teachers actually use this stuff. I guess I'm just curious for your thoughts on that, right? I mean, do you think teachers are open to this, actively looking for this, maybe a little hostile to this sort of thing? I mean, what is an actual flesh and blood teacher, do you think, need to hear that would get them to be open to using a tool like this? That's another really great question, because I think with any new technology that kind of makes a splash and sort of disrupts sort of the current status quo, there's going to be a little bit of hesitation, a little bit of reservation, a little bit of uncertainty. And so we're seeing that although, you know, tools like chat GPT and topics like AI have definitely cut into the mainstream fold, we're not really seeing high usage Um, as much as you would expect among teachers and parents as well. And so I think there's a lot more conversation around how do we increase buy-in, increase people's comfort levels with the tools so they can see the best way that they can get the right information, the right help and supports that they need. And so I think one, there should be a lot of conversation about debunking a lot of the myths, right? Chat GPT is not sentient. Chat GPT, you know, knock on wood, is not going to take over the world and take all of our jobs, but really chat GPT and AI tools can be a support to teachers rather than a replacement. They can be used as a tool in the class but they are not, you know, the the one size fits all, um, one pill to cure all educational problems. They really are just one piece in the larger landscape of educational supports and tools to help teachers. Yeah. And it sounds like, especially with these specialized bots, I mean, the big question, one big question is whether you trust the underlying database. Now, in this case, you went to the What Works Clearinghouse. You know, I tend to have a lot of trust in what they are trying to do. They've had very high standards for what goes in there. But, you know, I'm sure I would have some quibbles if I dug into, you know, some of what comes out of there, right? I mean, a lot of what David and I do, for example, all day long is talk about the nuance in some of the research literature. And so, for example, you know, you think about an issue like school discipline. You know, most researchers have focused on the impact of suspensions and expulsions on kids who get suspended or expelled, understandably, but there hasn't been as much focus on their peers, you know. So, uh, that may show up in the database. And I guess I would wonder, like, you know, as as a member of a free society and as somebody who's part of this debate, you know, if I see these chat bots giving answers that I think are maybe not comprehensive or that shows some some ideological bias or just miss some of the important nuance, you know, the question is then, well, then 
Like what, what do you do as a human being in that situation? Right. I mean, is there somebody you can call or that you can some way you can flag and say, Hey, you know, I don't think this thing is spitting out the answer that's that's right. And it, again, especially in this world that we might be heading into where when somebody Googles, uh, puts a Google query into their search engine, they're not going to be sent to other websites anymore. You know, it's just going to use a chat bot to generate answers. And that's as far as that person's going to get, you know, and so that's, I don't know, that's a lot of power. I don't know. I, I do wonder about what we do if, if we are concerned that it's, you know, may, look, maybe it's, 95% right, but the 5% is important. These are valid concerns that I agree with 100%. I mean, these tools are by no means perfect. They're still subject to hallucination. They can generate false and inaccurate information. And ultimately, these algorithms, as you pointed out, are only as good as the data that they're trained on. And that's why I think it's so important for there to be more educational data sets that are developed, that are released, and that are used to train these large language models. Right now, there's so much educational data, but there are often held privately, either within the school district databases or with proprietary organizations. If we have more publicly available educational data, if we have more quality educational research out in the web, we can trust that these algorithms are going to be trained on that information and produce better and more quality results. Um, but ultimately, these algorithms will only be as good as the data sets that they're trained on. And that's why I think a focus on quality data, vetting that data and making sure they're being used optimally um, is really critical. Well, Perpetual, this was fascinating. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Again, Perpetual Thafur, the Research Director at the Learning Agency Lab. My understanding is that you can read about this chat bot you all built, but you can also play around with it, right, on the Learning Agency Lab itself? Yep, there's a link for you to play around with the tool and you'll be able to see, you know, how it performs and you can compare it with the regular chat GPT and run your own tests and experiments. All right, and that is not an excuse to stop listening to the Education Gadfly Show, people. Okay. Not humans. Humans still provide value. All right. Perpetual, thanks so much. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. So, yeah, uh, a little nervous that the chatbots are going to take over our job, including, frankly, the Research Minute, you know, the, the learning agency lab. They've built this bot that is, you know, sucks information out of the What Works Clearinghouse and answers questions reliably. I don't know. But but I bet it doesn't have a Southern accent. doesn't have the Southern accent. And you know what? They should be training the bot. I bet it would be even more accurate if they not only trained it on the What Works Clearinghouse, but also... 10 years of the research minute that would make it much better that yeah the bot would be like drunk or something mike but <laughs> that makes me an idea i think literally uh, this is not the craziest we could create our own research minute bot or amber bot for short yeah i, I like that i a little uncomfortable about this but uh, okay <laughs> i know that the, the the hollywood people are striking over this very issue uh we'll give you credit amber it will. yeah sure all right what you got for us this week I have a new descriptive study out in AERA Open. 
It looks at how alternative licensure programs for teachers, we've had these for a while, but uh, this one's asking if they're if they're associated with changes in new teacher pay. Uh, it takes place in Texas, which introduced in 2001 guidance by the Texas Higher Ed Coordinating Board that allowed alternative certification programs. Now, they were already allowed, but they weren't very widespread. But this new guidance in 2001 said that they could reduce their program length, including not mandating a student teaching experience because of, you know, they were having these shortages, so they were trying to make it a little easier to get in there. Alt-cert is what I'm going to call it. Programs have previously been shown to increase diversity in the field and usher more males into teaching. But research on these programs is mixed. You guys probably know that. It depends largely on how the programs are structured, although prior studies by our buddy Dan Goldhaber and others have shown that subject-specific certification better predicts achievement rather than teacher licensure in general. This particular study is pretty narrow. It's only, again, looking at correlations between this change in policy and the number of teachers entering the field and whether that policy was associated with reductions in starting salaries for elementary teachers only. Doesn't cover teacher quality per se. Differences among alt-cert programs doesn't get into a lot of the nuance, but it lumps the online, the community college, the district run, and the university-based alt-cert programs all together. So they look at the year preceding the policy change so year 2000 and then 14 years afterwards, during which time the Great Recession occurred. So we've got to keep that in mind. Uh, they have about 1,200 districts in the sample. I was like, wow, I forgot. We're in Texas. 1,200 districts in the sample. They use a first difference regression model, which examines changes at the district level from one year to the next over time while controlling for differences in districts such as percentage of new teachers who are novices, number of students per pupil expenditures, teacher turnover rates, racial composition of teachers and students, percentage of special needs kids, free and reduced lunch, and so on. They're looking also at the differences between the highest and lowest quartiles of rates at which teachers are hiring alt-cert teachers. So the high alt-cert districts hire 50% or more of these teachers each year. The low uh, quartile hires less than 20% uh, elementary teachers each year with alt-cert licenses. Whew. Descriptives, let's talk about those first. The average district hires about 20 novices each year, mm. and the average district hired 32% of novices with alt-cert certification. Within five years, more than half of the state's new teachers were alternatively licensed, and the districts that were hiring most teachers with these alternative licenses were more diverse, larger, and experienced more turnover. And then on the um, sort of regression front, the average district pay for new teachers and elementary level declined by 2 to 13% within 15 years of the policy change, but pay actually also fluctuated. So in the year prior to the policy, the average district offered higher pay, which then fell over time. But then when you look at the high and low quartiles, you saw that districts who hired few of these alt-cert teachers initially offered lower wages and then increased to pay over time. And those who hired a lot of alt-teachers, alt-cert, offered higher wages initially. But then as more and more teachers came to these alternative pipelines, these higher districts that were hiring more of these types of teachers decreased the pay. And then just as one point of reference, in 2005, you had these districts who weren't hiring too many. They paid new teachers 4% less than they had in 2005, while the districts that were hiring a lot of alternatively certified teachers were paying 9% less than they were in 2000. 
So, you know, that's what I've got. But I mean, obviously, we've got all these questions about teacher pay scales and effectiveness, which is not discussed in the study. But what do you make of this trend um, with these alt cert programs and teacher pay? Right. I mean, I guess it's what an economist would hypothesize would happen, right? This is a market. And so you increase the supply, that's going to lower the price. In this case, increase the supply of teachers, you're going to lower salaries. You know, it sounds bad. (laughs) I mean, I think on its face, it probably is bad. But, you know, of course, we would love to know if it had an impact on, on quality, on effectiveness. You know, look, I think my own personal belief in most parts of the country we should be paying teachers more. But, you know, there are probably some places where they get paid okay. And there's also some specialties where, you know, this is my my old thing, right? We should pay physics teachers more. I'm not sure we need to pay physical education teachers more because there's a whole lot of people willing to do that job. And my sense is it is just not as hard as some of the other jobs uh, in the education profession. So it all depended. If this led to differentiation, it would be okay. But I can understand this is, uh, this is not going to be a study that proponents of alternative certification are going to be really excited about. Yeah, I guess that's what an economist would predict. In theory, they could have just hired better teachers, though, right? I mean, that's the other possibility, right, is that you, you know, you pay them the same, but because you have more to choose from, you get a better teacher, right, than you would have otherwise, in theory, right? And so I guess the question for me is, I mean, if we're thinking about the district's incentives and what the district is trying to accomplish here. I'm saying the district, I mean, these 1,200 districts, right? So why did it go one way and not the other? I mean, are they trying to reduce class sizes or just save money? Or do they just not, when push comes to shove, really believe that you know they can get a better teacher for more money because they're not sure they can predict teacher quality? It's kind of hard to characterize they here. Amber, did they, I mean, the fact that it was during the Great Recession, I mean, that is a tough one to to account for. And I I do, I mean, this was a period of time where I remember Texas achievement really went south. And I remember that because this was, you know, part of the Common Core debate was a lot, you know, national achievement was heading in the wrong direction. But Texas was as well, and they never adopted the Common Core. So I knew that uh, because that was one of my points that I would make, but it's possible that Texas really reduced funding pretty dramatically. And that's partly why we were seeing those decreases in achievement. They tried to control for that somehow. I don't believe they were able to control for too much of that. I mean, you saw, I mean, I went through the list of what they were able to control for, but I mean, I think the other thing with the great recession too, is that, you know, you've probably got some incentives that you can't quite make sense of, right? You're going to have some teachers who are going to go ahead and leave anyway, Right. Because maybe they're, you know, just going to go ahead and retire, given what it's looking like. And then you've got, you know, so if you're kind of worried about your job then that I don't know, I just feel like there's a lot of lot going on here that, that uh, we can't really account for, uh, given the time period that it covers. Yeah. All right. Well, that that's fair. Look, I, I do think, David, to your point, I think uh, what some of us used to argue back in the day, say in, in the early 2000s, was that if you expanded the supply by getting rid of unnecessary barriers, then you could maybe be more selective on things that did seem to matter. You know, at the time when we talked a lot about teachers' verbal abilities, right, you could basically raise praxis scores or whatever the certification test was. And then, you know, but you're opening the doors in other ways by not making people go through ed schools necessarily. So, you know, then you have that the best of all worlds. But if you all you do is open the supply, you don't make it any harder to say, you know, get over that testing hurdle. Then this is maybe what happened. 
And you're not awarding the the more effective teachers. I just want to make sure I got the descriptions right. It's something like 50% of teachers are now alternatively certified. That's correct. And so I guess I just think, you know, at a very basic level, it's notable that the sky hasn't fallen in, in Texas as this has happened. In other words, it's not, I don't know, that's not exactly a ringing endorsement of our teacher certification process that you can just get rid of it, have half the teachers come in alternatively certified. And basically, I'm not aware of any, you know, sort of disaster or Texas miracle as a result. And the declines, you said 2% to 13%, if it's, you know, mostly on the 2% side. All right. But see, we're, 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 we're trying to look at the glasses half full here, but we're, we're straining people. We are straining. All right, gang. Uh, that, alas, is all the time we've got for this week. Thank you, Amber. But yes, until indeed. next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.